vengeance. I am the knight. I am. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you? Hey, I am doing pretty good, pretty good, Matt. But let me ask you this: Are you on The Last of Us? I am not. Oh. I have nothing against it, but it's it's not like it's a kind of like oh, I'm not watching this. It's and I don't have the time thing ah that's very true that's very true there is only so much television that one can watch and i currently as of today i started wednesday on netflix the adams family reimagining from tim burton uh rest in peace original wednesday by the way yes that was just yesterday and amber and i just started only murders in the building a couple nights ago. Ah, uh, very good. I I haven't seen that yet, but the Steve Martin, right? What's Steve not Martin to love about Martin Steve Martin? Martin? Fun trivia fact: Steve Martin has more Grammys for country and banjo music than he does for comedy albums, but he has Grammys for both. Not surprising. One of the theaters I worked at many moons ago there was discussion of having steve martin come and play our gala but the thing was when he was touring at that point he was just touring with his banjo and his band and so they were worried that people would think he was coming to do comedy and would be disappointed so they decided to not do it i'm like he's still funny in between what assholes they're worried about a high-end you know, snooty theater donors. I think they're the assholes, and so it's better to just be safe. Now, to be clear, had I known at the uh, the Weird Al show I went to here in Huntsville that he was only going to play his originals, maybe I would not have gone. Maybe. I'm sure it was still a hell of a show. Yeah, it was a fun time, but uh, weird, right? You go to Weird Al thinking you got to hear some of the hits and he's like nope not playing any of that tonight have you heard albuquerque because here comes albuquerque yeah 90 minutes straight one more music question uh i don't know how we we got from tv to music but bare naked ladies minus Stephen page is playing the amphitheater in my hometown it's uh about two and a half hours away should I go? Matinee or evening? Mm, I think evening. Two and a half hours. It still might be a good show. I wonder if, do they still play any of the old stuff or do they just play the new stuff? I've got their um, live from Red Rocks, which was post Stephen Page. And they still, you know, they still played like, you know, old apartment you know, the, the Gordon era stuff. So I think, although it's kind of weird because like some of those were quintessentially Stephen Page songs. I would probably check the set lists, you know, see if somewhere you can find what they've been playing lately. Make sure they're still doing some of the stuff you want to hear. And then it might be worth it if it's, if you can get a reasonably priced hotel or have someone to stay with. Because I think, you know, assuming an eight o'clock start with an opener 
you're not done till 10 30 you're not going to get back until 1 a.m if it's if you're not going to hear any of the stuff you really want to hear probably not worth it if it were closer i'd say sure why not but two and a half hours for a set list you might not be into at all uh the opener is uh five for fighting which is not terrible no not at all they got the one song right but anyway, you, you started that's with last talk. Yeah, was there a particular? Were you just curious if I was watching it, or was there a particular? No, I mean it didn't have anything to do with anything. The most recent episode just fucking killed me, uh, like it killed everybody else online. Yeah, I mean, it's it's on the list of things I need to watch, but I read a hell of a lot of comics, and I only have so much time for TV. And it's usually whatever Amber and I are watching, whatever Laura and I are watching, and one or two shows for me. And I missed out on the Wednesday boat, but Laura was saying you had to watch, you have to watch, you have to watch it. So after having finished all 13 seasons of or 12 and a half seasons of Bob's Burgers, I was like, okay, I've got an open spot now. And Wednesday's <laughs> only eight, Wednesday's only eight episodes. So I'll be done with that real soon and then I, I say this just loud enough that she can hear if amber doesn't want to start it soon i'm gonna have to start it myself oh uh, i want to start poker face the new ryan johnson natasha leone show like this weekend because it's ryan johnson and natasha leone doing a columbo-esque thing i need to see that I, I still need to see uh, to, uh, Murderville over on Netflix. Yeah. But yeah, if you want a good cry, if you want to just really cry your eyes out, fire up uh, season, or, uh, episode three. It's uh, it's basically a standalone and it's uh, it's going to kill you. Sometimes you need that. Yeah. I will give that a shot. I mean, hey, what else? HBO Max is slowly stripping off most of the stuff I want to see anyway. Maybe I'll add something that I want to see on there. Ah, rest in peace, Pennyworth, the origin of Batman's butler. Another not terribly shocking revelation. But Doom Patrol, Titans. And I guess we now have this whole new slate of DC shows announced and movies announced. I'm not getting my hopes up about anything. We've seen enough announcements over the years that have come to naught. Let's see. Oh, I'm still waiting on those uh, Dark Universe movies from uh, Universal. You know, with all the buzz around him right now, I am shocked that Batgirl, with the main villain of Brendan Fraser, who's big right now, no pun intended to his performance in The Whale. The minute it came out of my mouth, I'm like... Oh, God, that could be read as a bad pun. But he's so popular right now, you'd think they might be reconsidering rolling that movie out. I know there's a lot of conspiracy mongering online, and Gunn came out the other day and defended the decision to shelve it. I think, really, they made an Arrowverse TV movie, and it just didn't stack up to a theatrical release. But I'm like, you've got a streaming platform right there, Put it out on that. That's exactly it. I'm shocked that they haven't dropped it on Max. And I think it might be a matter of timing for, you know, once you've waited long enough, you've eaten the loss, and then you can drop it 
after not suffering some sort of tax penalty and they might do something like that. I mean, the Snyder cut of Justice League was not going to happen until it happened. So it's possible, but I, I take people at their word. Like it's it's not coming out. They didn't think it was up to quality and so be it. But what a just tortured path the uh, DC Cinematic Universe has had uh, between the Flash and Batgirl and putting cameos in and taking cameos out and Henry Cavill. And it's just, it's, it's a messy, messy, messy place. It's time to just wipe their hands and start something fresh and maybe not try to make it a universe. Maybe yeah. just do a bunch of standalones. And then once you've had a little while and let things settle out then you maybe start tying some of these threads together it doesn't have to be the mcu exactly and just see what the people enjoy right like we liked the batman so we're getting more of the batman right people liked the first aquaman we'll see if the second aquaman is any good and if it is maybe there'll be a third but don't count on it because counting <laughs> on it gives you the end of black adam wah wah Okay. Well, you know what? Actually, let's say, okay, we've we've traveled farther afield, but actually this is more in the field than most of these openings are. Very we're, true. We're at least talking about things that are related to DC Comics. So this week, this is episode 75, sort of. You know that little beginning where I say we discuss three stories? This week, kind of, sort of. Because you see... Will has been asking to cover Batman Eternal. The 50- Begging the shit out of Matt to cover Batman Eternal. Which is, for those who don't know, a 52-issue weekly miniseries plus one issue of Batman. And I've been trying to figure out how to do it without, one, breaking my brain and what little free time that I have trying to cram that into a week. And two be able to keep our big board visible by three if we can't do that in one week because that's the most important thing for us yeah because math is a pain and this makes life easier so what we're doing is we're breaking eternal into three chunks because that was how it was traded in three parts and issue 75 is also going to be three parts three weeks Starting this week with episode 75A, and the next two weeks will be 75B and 75C, and that will be how we are covering each of those three parts of Eternal. And yet, that complicated and convoluted bit of logic is not as complicated and convoluted as this story. No, but but let me say this before we get any farther. To anybody listening out there, just stop listening right now. Wait two weeks until parts B and C come out and then listen to it all in one dreadful swallow. And, you know, you can have the three parts of Batman Eternal ranked in one extended sitting. That's what I would do if I was listening. But there, but see, I would say, you know, absorb it slowly. Take it in because it's a lot. It's Duh. a lot in the f- the first 21 issues that we're covering today is a lot. 
53 issues over what will probably be two and a half to three hours. Because I don't know if these will quite run our usual 75 minutes each. It might. It is going to be, I was going to say a sight to behold, but this is an audio medium. So, uh, sound to behold? I don't think there's a an equivalent saying. But uh, let, let me also say before we go any farther, why I was so big on wanting to cover this, uh, why I was so insistent, I bug it, again, bugging the shit out of Matt. This is one of those series uh, when I was getting into comics, he said, I'm, I'm relatively new. This was something I consumed vociferously. I remember reading these and just being so engrossed in this story. And Matt has wanted to go back and cover things that he remembered reading and enjoying and see how they held up. So that's primarily why I was so antsy to get to this, because uh, I remember reading and really enjoying the series, especially the conclusion. And I'm curious to hear some of the things that you're going to be thinking now that you've read some of the notes that they're riffing on and seen Mm. the originals. Because there's some of that that you would not have had the frame of reference for that shows up right here in this first chunk. Hey, I read The Cult. I get it now. Exactly. That's the big one. But here's another one of these hang on to your butts moments as I read these credits. Oh, boy. Because this is Batman Eternal Part 1. This is Batman Eternal numbers 1 through 21. Written by... Scott Snyder, James Tynion IV, Ray Fox, John Lehman, and Tim Seeley. With pencils by Jason Fabok, Dustin Wynn, Andy Clark, Trevor McCarthy, Emmanuel Simeone, Guillaume March, Ricardo Bricelli, Ian Bertram, and Mikel Janine. Inks by Fabok, Derek Friedolfs, Clark, McCarthy, Simeone, March, Bricelli, Bertram, Janin, and Guillermo Ortego. Colors by Brad Anderson, John Kalish, Blonde, Guy Major, Tamo Mori, Dave McCaig, Dave Stewart, Jeremy Cox. Letters by Nick J. Napolitano, Taylor Esposito, Rob Lee, Steve Wands, Desi Cienti, and Carlos M. Mangual. And edited by Mark Doyle, Katie Kubert, Matt Humphreys, and Dave Wilgush. The cover dates are June to October of 2014. Jim Gordon has seemingly caused a major tragedy in Gotham causing him to be imprisoned for manslaughter. But this is only the beginning, as a series of catastrophes test the Dark Knight and his allies. That is that is not even a summary. That is a summary of, like, issues one through three. <laughs> but if I went and tried to cover all the beats that we hit in just this first little more than a third of the series, we'd be here all night. We're well, going to be here I, all night. In in fairness to your summary, right? Gordon goes to jail in the very first issue and he does not get out until the 21st issue. So that's that's good enough in terms of an overarching story. And he's not even really out. He's exonerated, but sort of. Doom, doom, doom. I thought of various ways that we were going to structure this discussion because of how much there is in these issues. And I've yet to come up with a way. This is going to be part of the experiment, ladies, gents, and non-binary folks. This is 
going to be something where we are going to have to sort of find our way. And I'm sure we're going to find it by the third part of this thing. And by that point, it's going to be like, oh, well, we, we figured out the best way to talk about this. And now we're done. We'll be ready when we do 52 and countdown. Please, God, don't make us do countdown. No. Uh, well, let's maybe start first with one note that's going to carry throughout this series. It is impossible to do a weekly comic or even you know, a bi-monthly comic with one artistic team. Like, it's just humanly impossible. Look, as a writer myself, writing is not the easiest thing to do. But, you know, if you get hopped up on enough caffeine and deprive yourself of enough sleep, you can crank out a script. You can crank out a story. You can crank out a review. You can write and it be of some quality that you can edit. Art just doesn't work the same way. Those people have to take time, especially if there's going to be any quality. So I will grant the fact that we needed a big art team for this project. What hurts me inside is that like all of the other kind of, I I wouldn't say forgotten DC endeavors, but This has the injustice problem, but not nearly to the same degree, because the art here is good. The art, though, just has wildly different styles. And as you're trying to read this all in one story, and I think certainly this does work better in trade, because God help you, you try to remember what's going on from week to week, uh, because this is an intricately crafted story. Just wildly different artistic visions from issue to issue. And... You can't take something like the wind's pencils and basically stack them up to anybody else. So, because there was, there's some artists in that bunch who are hyper detailed, hyper and when is not. And like, I personally didn't care for his issues, but they did work as you're down in the bowels of Arkham Asylum and journeying into hell. Like that had a great, creepy, ominous vibe. His stuff didn't work so much when he's trying to do like, neo future tokyo type stuff it just wasn't as colorful inks are too heavy not enough detail again it just didn't fit for his style and so i understand certainly why you need that big artistic team but i wish there had been a better editorial vision for okay we're gonna pick five people with basically the same style or a dc house style And this is going to look at least a little bit similar from issue to issue. Or you pick artists to draw each story. Everyone is doing every page of every issue. But Nguyen is doing the horror stuff at Arkham. Jay Fabuk is doing the Jason Bard, GCPD, Mob War Mikel Janine is doing the Tim Drake Harper Rowe globe-trotting Hong Kong adventure, etc. Et I mean, you get different artists for those different plots. That is also a way to do it to keep a little more consistency. And that would have been great. And you speak of consistency, and one thing that bugged the hell out of me: inconsistent character designs. I don't know how you can have that. You know, maybe the designs weren't finalized when, you know, when they start or something, but 
Bard has like three or four or five different basic appearances. Like he pops in in uniform for one of his issues. Carmine has four or five different designs. Like they bring him uh, with the the sport coat and the t-shirt, which is a good look. And then the next issue, he's basically like, uh, like he is in, you know, Dark Victory or Long Halloween. And it's just like this, this glaring inconsistency. If we're going to talk about the inconsistencies, there's one that bugs me, and it's not an artistic one. It's one of the ones that has to do with multiple writers as well. Towards the end, there's a push-pull between Batman and Bard, and it's inconsistent at times about how much he trusts him. Mm-hmm. One issue, he's pretty much like, yeah, you sold the Roman out to the Penguin. Yes! And that is dropped, dropped like a fucking rock. The next issue, he's shaking his hand. Then the issue after that, he's kind of wary of him, but not, you're a murderer, wary of him. And it's that one inconsistency. And again, I accept that with multiple writers and multiple schedules, they're not necessarily writing issue 16 is done, then the next writer start 17 it's not necessarily exquisite corpse but it felt like that particular beat at the end of that issue with the penguin that had to do with the penguin and then bard and batman that felt like it was two issues too soon or was something they thought they were going to do and then pulled back on but they didn't catch it in editorial there aren't a ton of those there aren't a ton of these moments where it's clear that there were seams when it comes to the smoothness of the writing, but that was a big one. Yes, it was. That was That's a sore spot for sure. So this first chunk is what I call in my head the gang war, because that's the spine of these first 21 issues. That by the end of issue 21, the plot that has to do with the Romans return to Gotham and his war with the Penguin is mostly wrapped up. The second arc has to do with the villain who pops up at the end of this first arc, who's the big reveal at the end, who it looks like might be the mastermind. And you get that impression for the next few issues through issue 34 when it's revealed that, oh, he's not. And then the third arc is the conclusion. But for here, there are, see, I was going to say four plot lines, really, but then some of them are sort of tied in and shorter little like mini bits that have to do with one of the other plots. Because you've got the gang war between the Roman and the Penguin and the Jim Gordon thing, which is all sort of one arc. You have Batgirl's quest to free Jim Gordon. You have Red Robin investigating something weird in the Narrows. And you have what's going on at Arkham Asylum and the supernatural aspect. Those are the four core plots. But then there's towards the end of the first arc, a sort of side quest with Killer Croc. There is the politics within the GCPD, which has to do with the Roman plot, but is its own sort of thing. 
which is amazing. I yes. love GCPD politics. The GCPD politics in this are really good. I have one. It's I don't even think it's a quibble necessarily, but there's something to discuss there. You've got Jim in prison, which again, while tied into the stuff with the gang war is itself its own plot. And a lot of these plots disappear for issues at a time, specifically the Red Robin plot and the stuff at Arkham disappear for issues at a time. There's Catwoman stuff going on. There's Vicky Vale stuff going on. And all of that ties into that major spine. Oh, no, there's at least five major because there's also the, the Stephanie Brown stuff. Ah, yes. Which is another big thing. But all of these plots do have something sort of to do with each other. But not all of that becomes clear until much later. And some are much further removed from the main plot than others. That's the central theme of this book, at least how I remember it. Like plots within plots within plot. Someone is planning all of these things. Someone is planning to take down Batman and Gotham. Who is it? Uh, and it's Batman's quest and, and responsibility to figure out. Unless you wanted to hit something different, let's center in on the, the GCPD stuff. Because again, I am I am horny for that shit. We'll start there. Let's start with Gordon and the GCPD. So this whole thing starts because in issue one, Jim is basically alone in the Museum of Aviation trying to save a group of hostage kids from Professor Pig. And after Pig flees, Gordon pursues one of his hoods and takes a shot at the guy who is armed, misses, hits a transformer, and causes two trains to collide. And Gordon is arrested for... 160 plus counts of involuntary manslaughter. And this causes huge ripples within the GCPD because now Gordon is gone. It creates a power vacuum. And this is that first domino, or this is the butterfly flapping its wings that's going to cause the hurricane. Our current GCPD crew that we're dealing with are Old standby Harvey Bullock, Maggie Sawyer, Officer Strode, who appears a couple times and was sort of a background uniformed officer taking the Montoya position since nobody seemed to know what to do with Montoya at this point. And then the new cop brought in from outside, hired by Gordon right before this begins, Jason Bard, who is an established character, although this is a very different take on Bard. And Major Forbes, Jack Forbes, who is a completely new character. And that's one of these things where I wish... That is my the closest thing, I, as I said, I have to a quibble. Because Forbes who apparently did have a few appearances before this in the New 52 Dark Knight series, the most forgettable Batman series of the New 52. 
Like he appeared like three times in that series and then never again. That's a character I wish had been built up more leading up to this point because he just sort of shows up as your stereotypical bad Gotham cop. There's no levels or layers to this guy. He's a Jim Gordon is inefficient and boy, howdy, wasn't it great when we were corrupt? Yeah, those those were the days. Bard has layers. Bard has development, or at least things that we learn about him as readers. Uh, but no, Forbes is is a right asshole from page one. I do like the the central idea of what happens to Gordon and how he gets strung up because as I'm as I'm thinking about this, the proper charge as my darling wife is studying for the bar as we speak the proper charge for someone who say improperly discharges a firearm that happens to hit a transformer that happens then to result in two subway trains colliding is probably not 150 counts of manslaughter and you probably wouldn't get arrested at that scene uh that's the decision for you know a district attorney to make but 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 forbes is an asshole and sees an opportunity. This is my chance to get rid of Jim Gordon. And also presumably he's plugged in on this whole conspiracy or is he, I think they come to him after this happens. Yeah. I think he's just an asshole and he wanted to make this play. And he knows that Gordon is the kind of person who would feel such guilt about this, that he's not going to put up a fight and not say, fuck you, I want my union rep. You can't arrest me right here on the spot. Oh, Which man. Many cops would. Uh, I, I want to see GCPD, union reps. God, I just, I, I love it. I love the stereotypical cop drama. Uh, if it was on television, I'd be like, man, fuck that. Get that. I'm not watching this other like law and order show. But when it's in a comic book and it's Gotham, I love it. But yeah, like these plots just within the department so forbes makes this move against gordon the roman comes in and uh gets gets in the mayor's ear the mayor then is like okay all right i guess i found my new commissioner and then you got bard here who starts to plot against the commissioner who then brings in vicky vale and it's again i thoroughly enjoyed the hell out of that story now you reading this would have not had any idea who Jason Bard was. He was a completely new character to you, correct? Exactly, exactly. For me, who knew who Jason Bard was, I did not expect the heel turn because in the comics, he's Barbara Gordon's ex. He was a character introduced in the early to mid-70s as a Vietnam vet who walked on a cane because of an injury he got in the war and was a PI. And he disappeared for years and years. And then Chuck Dixon brought him back in Birds of Prey, where he served as one of Oracle's agents. So I knew him as a good guy. And so I should have, A, known this is the New 52, so nothing was holy anymore. No one is safe. No one is safe. And this is firmly in the new 52. 
there's a lot of talk of that ridiculous five-year timeline. Yep. yep. And a Constant lot of re- references to zero year. Yep, exactly. Zero year comes up a lot in here. So this wipes out a lot of the existing canon. The fact that Carmine Falcone is alive and well and was run out of Gotham by Batman, Gordon, and the Penguin, not necessarily working together, but the Penguin taking his spot as the capo tutti de capo and Gordon and Batman going after him, as opposed to the whole Two-Face, two to the head, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy kind of thing, leaves us in a completely different continuity. Carmine is also considerably younger. And as you pointed out, not always in his tux. He's mostly a Miami Vice sports coat over a t-shirt kind of guy. Which is a fun look. Now, both the writers and the artists are quick and consistently pointing out, oh, he's still got those scars from Catwoman. Yes, and we do eventually see her give him the scars. And it's it's a slightly different scene than what we got in year one. And there's a lot of that in here when it comes to the flashbacks. There are more variations on a theme than the actual story we remember. The cult is, as we mentioned, a very big change again it plays the theme but it cuts out a lot of the meat and it feels almost like the reprise in a musical where it's the same piece that you heard earlier but it's a shortened version of that let me uh pop in for a quick question first what exactly is nightwing up to at this time and second why does the GCPD know his identity? The GCPD know his identity? Yeah, on yes. a on a on a whiteboard it is Dick Grayson equals Nightwing. Yes, I forgot that was on the whiteboard. Okay. This takes place after a crossover called Forever Evil where the crime syndicate, the Earth 3 Evil Justice League crossed over to earth prime and took over they they took out the justice league and they basically started conquering the world and again because of the new 52 this was the first time anyone had ever encountered the crime syndicate and when they did they unmasked dick to the world like on the news so everyone knew dick grayson was nightwing ah and at the end of that story I think it was Owlman, hooked him up to a bomb or something. And the only way to stop the bomb was to kill Nightwing. And of course, Bruce wasn't going to do it. But Luthor does. He stops Dick's heart. Bomb stops. And then they resuscitate Dick. But for everyone's safety, the world had to believe, because his identity was out there, that Dick Grayson was dead. Dick went to work for the espionage agency Spiral. Now I remember that now. Yeah. Yes. That's how he started working for Spiral with Huntress. But the only people who know he's alive, I believe, it's been a long time since I read Forever Evil, were Bruce and Luthor. And there are references in here to when they run into Croc talking to Batman, but you know, where were you when Bane was taking over the city and this and that. 
that isn't actually a reference to Nightfall. That's a reference to Forever Evil when Batman was off dealing. He was the only member of the Justice League who wasn't taken out and put into a pocket dimension by the crime syndicate. He was having to work with Luthor and Selina and Captain Cold and a bunch of villains. Bane swept back into Gotham and started taking over the city again. And Croc wanted a rematch and lost again. But that's the what Croc is talking about in the sewers, about where were you when Bane was doing this? Because Forever Evil is not that long ago when this comes out. It's within a couple of months of when Forever Evil ended and Eternal started. Question asked and answered. It took me a minute to remember that when Croc's talking about that, but I knew that, all right, Dick's not around, because that's when Tim is saying after what happened to Nightwing, after what happened to Robin, because at this point they think Dick is dead and Damien is. So Bruce is not doing well with sidekicks at this particular moment. Reading this, I did not expect Bard to turn out to be in on the conspiracy until he winds up in on the conspiracy because I thought he was a good guy because he'd always been a good guy before this. Well, you certainly get a hint of that turn when he's willing to, you know, sell out the Roman. And then like, like we've just said, like that should have been something that crossed the line for Batman. That was a definitive, Hey, we don't work with them. We work against them for the city. There's there's nothing, nothing that should prompt you to, you know, encourage, uh, you know, wholesale slaughter. And that was an ethical lapse that Batman should have called out and put a finer point on. So, I mean, you can see that at that point, he is not the white knight that perhaps readers are willing to believe he is. He's not the white knight that Gordon believes he is. And that's what Batman says. Like he goes into the spiel before, you know, he says, I figured what you did, Bard. Like, hey, Jim Gordon, I trust him, but sometimes he makes bad decisions. The implication there being he made a bad decision when he hired you. The GCPD stuff is tied very tightly into the gang war. Because as you said, the Roman was the one who got Mayor Haiti to hire Forbes as commissioner. And Forbes' whole thing is, this gang war doesn't matter. Let these, quote, goombas take each other out. Our goal is to take out the real root of the problem in Gotham, the Batman. The Batman. So we get a sort of classic Batman versus the GCPD plotline running there. But the difference is here you have a commissioner who is actively working against Batman versus the passive corruption of someone like Loeb or Grogan who just didn't want him stepping on their toes. Forbes is actively trying to work for the mob. Every time Batman arrests any of the Romans guys, he just lets them go. Yeah, we don't we don't work with capes. That's, of course, his undoing in the end, because Bard just calls in the press and has them there. When Forbes is saying, you know, let him go. You got Vicky Vale standing right there. Like, can I quote you on that? And that puts him in Dutch with the Roman. And at that point, Bard has sold 
the Roman out to the penguin. And I love the way that relationship is handled, the Roman-Penguin stuff. Not that you really ever see them together, but this old venerable mobster returning to reclaim his territory from the guy who took it. It's an interesting inversion of One Bad Day Penguin, where it's the penguin in that position. And in a good bit of foreshadowing, they keep talking about Rex Calabresi, the mobster who the Roman usurped back in the day. And this natural order where the young lion will kill the former leader of the pride to take his place. And that this is the natural order of things. And by the end of this series, we will see a complete change in the way the Gotham mob is run. But we don't get that until the next couple of arcs, because this arc is just dealing with these two older lions bashing against each other. Uh, But it was a a very neat little bit of storytelling that Gordon's cellmate, Leo, was in fact Rex Calabrese. Yes. And we get hints of Calabrese's relationship to another character here, but nothing that is fleshed out until the next arc. Although if you read carefully, there's a line that absolutely gives it away in one issue when Professor Pig is looking at Catwoman who he has captured along with the Roman and is thinking about turning her into one of his animal-human hybrids. He asks if she's related to a lion. Oh. It's one of three lines that I particularly wrote in my notes with a big foreshadowing next to <laughs> which only reads as foreshadowing when you've read the whole series it's not club you over the head with it but there are three pretty clever bits and another one is something we've already discussed when bard and forbes are arguing earlier bard says something and forbes replies that no one cares they'll care when it's your name on that door <laughs> it's like oh well they're they're foreshadowing what's going to happen to Forbes and Bard and the third is when Batman is talking to Selina after the Professor Pig incident she tells him that someone tipped the Roman off and told him to come back to Gotham and Batman goes that's the real question who with a picture of the shadowy person watching him which is not paid off until the penultimate or even final issue of this series when you find out who the real mastermind is after like five possible masterminds. But that right there is like, oh, knowing this, going back, that is a clever little moment of foreshadowing with putting a big who over the shadowy figure watching Batman. If you haven't read this, and you've listened to our past couple episodes, I think that might give away who this is. But we won't say it until the character actually shows up. So you'll have a couple weeks before you find out who the big secret mastermind of this entire thing is. I'm trying to figure out if we've talked about this plot enough that we should move on to some of the other stuff going on. I will say that one of the more disturbing things I've seen in a comic in a long time is 
Penguin and the end when he is massacring the Roman's men and confronts the Roman, he's wearing that like big egg onesie that he wore in Batman Returns. Well, yeah, you don't want to get your tux dirty. Yeah, but boy, it's just, I was like, oh, you know, it does not break my cardinal rule of Penguin. He is full on like mobster guy there. He's just wearing that weird outfit, which is a juxtaposition I didn't expect. You can you can get that bloody. He knew he was going in for wet work, and you just throw that in the wash. I get it. I totally get it. Range of movement there. Not arguing that point. I guess before we move into anything else, the other of these plots that is really sort of tied into this is the stuff with Jim. And that's also rough, but not enough, like not rough and like, oh, this is difficult to read, rough, but rough in the Oh, that gets you because Jim is broken mm. by having done this and he's doubting himself and they've thrown him into gen pop because the warden of Blackgate is a cop that he busted out of the force. I believe for excessive force, I don't think she was corrupt. I think she was just a little rougher than Jim was willing to accept. Which and is like one of those transfers from New York to Gotham. And that that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> but she's, I mean, because you see, she's not a crook. She's not willing to necessarily hand Jim over to the thugs who would kill him. She's just not necessarily defending him from them. And sh- she's vindictive, not a crook. And in the end, she's willing to shake Jim's hand when Jim basically almost single-handedly puts down a prison riot with a little help from Leo Rex Calabresi in the end. And a fire extinguisher. And a brief cameo and no help whatsoever from Harper Rose's shitty, shitty dad. (laughs) That guy is the worst. I like Harper. I'm I'm glad that Harper still gets play. I'm really glad that we never have to see her shitty dad because he is just one of those people that you just want to punch in the face and they draw him with such a punchable face. And speaking of Harper, what a, what just a shining moment in time this is for her. Like this is right around the time of her creation. Scott Snyder is clearly very proud of her. And she is depicted as being Tim Drake's mental equal. That is some high status in the DC universe. And I gotta say, it's all downhill for her after this. Yeah. Batman Eternal and then Batman and Robin Eternal are Harper's best stories. Now she's, we would say relegated. I think there are people who would say that she is getting a spotlight as Punchline's arch nemesis. Because she's the, the central counter to Punchline in the Joker backups and in the Punchline miniseries. But even if you can argue that, you know, Punchline is a, a major character, when is the last time Harper had a major appearance in one of the main Batman titles? Mm, that's like being the quarterback on the winning team of the gray cup like yeah i mean that's nice it's an achievement but you sure would like to be in the nfl you Uh, sure would like to be in the bat 
in the main bat books. I'm the starting center and team captain of a a professional, if exhibition, basketball team. Great. What team? Washington Generals. What was that? Uh, the Washington Generals. Wah, wah. But yeah, so we'll we'll sort of slide since we just sort of talked about it there into the Tim and Harper stuff. Because Tim comes back to Gotham really for the first time in the new 52, except for a brief appearance during the couple of crossovers that have taken place before this, during Night of Owls and during Death of the Family. Well, this is the shining time for Harper Rowe. This is not the best time for Tim Drake. Tim is petulant and distant. And that is very much the Tim Drake of the early New 52, because nobody knew what to do with Tim Drake. They didn't, he wasn't- To Matt's consternation. Yes. Because, listen, the New 52 books were of varying quality. Batman, prime core Batman, great comic. Batman and Robin, good to great comic. Grant Morrison's action comics, great comic. Jim Lee and Jeff Johns' Justice League, pretty comic. And, you know, the Green Lantern books are okay. Some of the other Superman, some of the other Batman stuff that happened. Nightwing, except for that hideous costume, was enjoyable. Gail Simone into the Batgirl of Burnside stuff was good, although I'll always say Barbara is better as Oracle, but that's neither here nor there. This is a long way to go to, amongst the worst of the New 52, was Teen Titans. It was a bad comic. It had no idea what to do with these characters. It was over-sexualized. It was just plain bad. Because Is that these... uh, Adam Glass era Teen Titans? Uh, no, this is Scott Lobdell. Eee, he was on and, that book forever. And Brett Booth. Eee. Yeah. This was a bad era for the Titans because these were characters who because of the changes in the timeline should not have theoretically existed because you've got Tim Drake who is sort of squeezed out of the timeline and who they give a crappy new origin to you get impulse or kid flash who is no longer Bart Allen. I mean, he goes by Bart Allen, but he has no real relation to the Flashes. You've got Superboy, who is like programmed weapon, clone weapon kid. You have a Wonder Girl who, yeah, no, it's just bad. It's just a bad comic. And they're all written as angsty, angry teens versus Tim Drake, who was never that kid. Whenever Tim went through periods of angst, it was because his dad died. Things like that, that genuinely would fuck you up versus him just being emo kid. And he was on the outs with the Bat family. So this is him sort of returning to the fold. And he'll pretty much stay returned to the fold from here. Because it'll go from here into Batman and Robin Eternal. And then 
Batman Robin Eternal wraps not too long before the new 52 ends and you get Tinian's detective when Tim is a full-on Bat Family character again. But here, Tim is the tech Robin and he is the detective Robin and he is investigating this thing going on in the Narrows that has compromised Harper's brother and Tim and Harper are on this globe-trotting adventure that takes them to Tokyo. It is science fiction Batman stories. Each of these different plots touches on a different type of Batman story. The one that we were talking about, the mob war, the GCPD, that's ground level Batman. That's the stuff that you and I tend to dig on, Will. So yeah, no wonder that's the one that we both wanted to talk about. This is weird high science fiction Batman. Then we have globetrotting adventure Batman. Because, I mean, yeah, there's some globetrotting here, but it's not globetrotting espionage, traveling the world to fight Rachel Ghoul, Batman Inc. That's the Batgirl story. And we do and get the, some cameos from Batman Inc. Yes. And you, I mean, Batman does some of that too. There's a lot of actually quite a bit of globetrotting, but I kind of take that big adventure plot and put that in yeah. with the. Batgirl, Red Hood plot as that sort of thing. And then you've got the supernatural Batman stories, which you get with the Batwing Spectre stuff at Arkham. And then the Stephanie Brown stuff is Batman versus supervillains. And one thing I will say, with the exception of the Penguin and a very brief appearance by the Scarecrow, the A-listers are mostly off the table here. That they are. There's no there's no Harvey, no Joker, no Freeze, no Ivy. And that's an important thing. And we'll we'll get to that when we get to the wrap-up of this. But the fact that the A-listers aren't here is important. We get the, the very end of this. Oh, damn, I forgot. There's another plot I forgot to mention. <laughs> Because we haven't even talked about Julia Pennyworth. Ah, yeah, that was a good one. Yes. Julia coming in and being so angry at her father for only being this lowly butler. And at the uh, the whole time, the reader's screaming, "You, you! if only you do, if only you do. And he was the, the second to the Batman. And he's the Batman to the Batman. But that's another one of those things that I think the writing... The seams show because Julia and Alfred have that conversation six times. Every couple issues, once she shows up, she's rolling her eyes at him, and you're saying she's he's just this butler. Over it's like each of the writers wanted to write that conversation in one of their issues. When do we see the badass Alfred defending the manor? That was fun. That's the very last issue of this part. That that's 21. And that, yeah, that is Alfred. He's not being bare-knuckle brawler Alfred, which I can take or leave. But this is a very... Master Bruce does not believe in firearms. But he's not here right now. And he's just being very cold and very reasoned as he goes through the manor, which apparently has been invaded. And he's just like, I will shoot you in the spine. And that will be it. 
You will live. You will not live well. Alfred is important in this whole thing as Bruce's support. And we see why when, again, the whole point of this is the mastermind behind this is breaking down the structures that support Batman. There's some nightfall to this as a concept, but this is not just exhausting Batman physically. This is breaking Gotham as well as breaking Batman. And so that's why you take out Jim Gordon. It's why you do the things to Arkham that are done. It's why you remove Alfred from the equation. Whoever is doing this knows knows Batman's life and Bruce better than Bane did because they are making particular maneuvers that require an intimate knowledge of Batman. And we'll see how that plays out in the next arc or two. But, okay, so we, we've touched on the Tim Drake thing, which that is a plot that comes up at the beginning, then disappears for a bunch of issues, and then comes back towards the end of this first arc. Speaking of, something similar is the supernatural plot here, which disappears for issues at a time. And this is Jim Corrigan, the Spectre, and... Luke Fox Batwing investigating something going on that Spectre has been getting these vibes that something bad is going on in Gotham. And it winds up being that Arkham is almost literally being run by the inmates. And the Gotham Underground, which had been introduced, I believe, in Catwoman, and was the idea that after, you know, years of earthquakes and and building collapses and fires, the city had been kind of built on top of the wreckage of previous buildings and previous parts of the city. So there was a whole underground city that was at one point in Catwoman caught in sort of a mob war in between Doc Phosphorus and the Joker's daughter. You know, reading the Joker's daughter again, it actually did make me kind of miss Punchline. (laughs) Because I will take Punchline over the Joker's daughter any day of the week. Uh, there are only two or three people who should be allowed to draw Joker's daughter. And I don't think any of them worked on this book. No, this is the particular version of the Joker's daughter. Who's wearing the Joker's skinned face. It's real gross. And she was another character that they were really trying to make fetch happen with <laughs> Joker's daughter. And this is, possibly a failing of mine but anytime that happens it's it's part of why i dis- dislike punchline it's part of why i dislike ghost maker because those are characters that it felt like look at this shiny new toy isn't it cool you're supposed to love this character and it's what they did with joker's daughter and i balk against being told i should love this new character I you should love poochie right Yes, it is absolute Poochie syndrome. I want to find and love a character because it's an interesting character. That's why Harley works. Because Harley was an interesting character who people just sort of gravitated towards. By the way, at some point for the bonus pod, Spotify just released a new Batman-related audio drama 
that is a sort of retelling of Mad Love, but one that gives Harley more agency and more of an agenda that she's playing Lovestruck to get what she wants out of the Joker. And uh, Christina Ricci is Harley. That should be fucking good. But yeah, this was, I just saw a review of it. I, I knew it was coming. And I was like, oh, I guess it's out. So yeah, something to cover someday. Harley's another character who does not appear at all in this book. Another major Bat character who is completely not in here. But yeah, so we've got this supernatural plot, which again, kind of comes and goes. And it's a thing that it feels like the timeline of this book feels weird. Because some things seem to be taking place over the course of weeks. And then there's things like that plot where, okay, Batwing and Jim Corrigan walk into Arkham, discover this thing in the underground happening with Joker's daughter and Maxie Zeus and the ghost of Deacon Blackfire. And then they're not in there for like six issues. And when they pop up again, it's like no time has passed. Have they been wandering around under there for six weeks? I think you can say generally that these 20 issues, 21 issues, probably take place over the course of, if we were using a normal timeline in the justice system, maybe a year from Gordon's arrest to trial. But this being comic book and not realistic, I mean, it's got to be at least a couple of months, right? At least. That's what I'm thinking, that it it's a couple of months. And since we're 21 weeks, that's five months and change of real world time. But I don't think this isn't 52. This isn't one week correlates to one week or one issue correlates to one week because there's there's just not... Corrigan and Batwing have not been wandering around underground for 10 weeks. That, that There's no way they could have happened. At least the first couple of issues feel fairly decompressed because there is a lot of dwelling on the aftermath of the subway accident. Yes. But then you've got other moments where, again, the Batgirl plot, she's like, I'm going to Brazil. And then there's three or four issues in between when she says she's going to Brazil and we see her in Brazil. There's no way Barbara waited that number of weeks to head to Brazil, or it would have taken that long for Red Hood to find her in Brazil. That's not necessarily a complaint. I'm just saying that things seem to move at different paces because the the main spine, the mob war, which is in pretty much every issue, or the mob war, the GCPD stuff, that's like, okay, well, this is happening. But then it just it kind of made me scratch my head when it was like, this other stuff doesn't seem to line up. It seems to be fit in there when the writer who's writing that plot is back on the rotation to script that particular issue. And since they're only doing every few issues each, some of these plots disappear for a while and feel like the timeline is a bit screwy. I don't know if you spelled this out in the credits. You probably did, uh, but let's underline it. You get the sense that this is a writer's room because several folks get consulting credits, but this is a story by Snyder and Tinian. Yes. 
it feels like they said, okay, this is the the thing that's going on. There's these villains and these characters are involved and this is the end point. We're going to go to the internet's greatest source of knowledge, Wikipedia. Ta-da! Wikipedia specifically cites an interview from Newsarama and some of our, I mean, various interviews from different spots. Tiny and stated he'd be focusing on some of the younger members of the Bat family, including former Robins, Tim Drake, and Stephanie Brown. Additionally, Tiny will be introducing a larger role for the Gotham Gazette and Vicki Vale. Tim Seeley revealed that he'd be working on the action, espionage, and adventure genres with his arc focused on Batgirl and Red Hood. Ray Fox will be covering the horror genre and aspect of Gotham while focusing on Batwing and Jim Corrigan. John Lehman, before leaving the project, because he leaves after this first group of issues, was to focus on the colorful aspects of Gotham and the villains. Lehman's replacement, Kyle Higgins, will continue that focus. So because of that, when the writer's room is back and that person is in the focus, or that writer is in the focus, they are bringing their particular plot lines to the fore, which is why things drop away for a time. And while, you know, you could see from that, that, you know, the Jim Gordon, the Batman, the mob stuff is the spikes. No one writer is focused on that. Tim Drake is only the focus when Tiny is scripting or head writing that issue. The supernatural stuff is only at the fore when Ray Fox is focused on that issue, etc. I really wish more comics had a writer's room approach. Because this, for, for any complaints that we've had, this is a project that does feel very well put together. At least from a storytelling standpoint. Uh, again, we've already had the complaints you know, with the art, but this feels like a really engaging, fun read. If I had to, if I had to pick between these 21 issues and let's say Tom King's first 21 issues, or even Scott Snyder's first 21 issues, uh, I might go with this. But we're not talking about that tonight because we've got enough to talk about here. In the the Fox stuff, he's the one who brings back uh, the Ten-Eyed Man, who we've seen a lot since then in some of the creepy supernatural stuff that we've been reading with Arkham City and who just popped up again in tech. And this this gives us that really creepy supernatural Ten-Eyed Man. Because he was a minor, minor bat rogue before this. A lot of characters who had not appeared before in the New 52 show up here. Because he's one. Maxi Zeus, who had been dead for a long time in the main continuity, is alive and well again here. You see... Well-ish. Ish. Yeah. Physically, he's he's doing pretty great. Uh, you see Dr. Doctor, uh, Doctor X, Simon X make his first appearance in decades here. And he'll again show up in Arkham City, map of the world. And and we just get to it at the very end, his first appearance in three or four years, uh, the architect pops back up again. And they use a bunch of the villains that Snyder created right before the New 52 in Black Mirror, uh, Roadrunner and Tiger Shark. 
both pop up as the Romans henchmen. Shark watch. Yes. Yep. Tiger shark. He does count, doesn't he? Yep. I there was an actual shark too. Yes. Yes. There was, was it a shark. It was a, it was a killer whale. Huh. Uh. Well, there was a fin, so I thought it to be a shark. But then we also had a killer whale too. Yeah. But yeah, shark watch. Well, well I will absolutely count it. Sorry, well, penguin. Yeah. That was great. The the whole the war at the the iceberg casino and the sinking of the iceberg casino, and we do briefly see penguins like X list black and whites from Detective Comics is like weird assortment of freak villains who appear very briefly in the New Fifty Two and then are forgotten because none of them have any real personality and all feel like they're sort of chair faced Chippendale from the Tick. Okay, I think. The only things that we haven't really touched on, I mean, I have like 20 pages of notes because yeah. it's a lot of notes. We still have to talk about Steph, but I think she might be the only thing that we haven't touched on at all. Yeah, there's a lot of Professor Pig in here, and I think that's just because he's really crazy to write and i think a lot of writers are like yeah let's let's do professor pig you're right i mean we get batman in in hong kong and the batman of japan comes over to help out and el gaucho appears in brazil even though he's argentinian but he, he says he's there it's not like it's confusion where all of south america is one continent not like the batman of africa Eesh. I love the the stuff they do with the Roman, even though I, I prefer the Roman who dies at the end of Long Halloween. I prefer that whole version of things. I like that, you know, when he left, he, you know, builds up this whole thing in Hong Kong and he builds his power base before returning to Gotham to reclaim it. Oh, we haven't really talked about Barbara. God, there's a lot of stuff going on in this book. We do have Barbara and Red Hood and eventually Batwoman in brazil because barbara's walking a very fine line because jim is in prison and she needs to prove her father is innocent and is not waiting on anyone for that no and i think it's a well-written take on barbara on the edge and it's great to juxtapose her against jason who's used to being the one who's the guy on the edge and here he's like, okay, you got to slow your roll. And it's like, when I'm the one telling you, you need to slow your roll. That's saying something. Look, I like punching all of my problems as much as the next guy, but uh, sometimes problems just can't be punched away. And the end of that story in Brazil, when Barbara has been mind controlled by the guy who put the whammy on Jim and kind of got him to fire that shot, how Jason gets her to stop is a beautifully written scene absolutely him him playing to her photographic memory and talking about all the sights and the sounds and the smells of when they first met because she's seeing him as the joker to beat him to death and he tells her things only he would know and it just it's really a beautifully done scene She's seeing him as Joker and she's seeing Batwoman as the other cause of the misery in her life. Her brother, James, who shows up here briefly in a couple yeah. of great scenes between him and Gordon. 
everyone is in this story except for the important people we've talked about who are intentionally not there and we'll kind of see why by the end but that scene with james jr and james is like you just need to admit that you hate this city as much as everyone else and this is the period when james jr was on the suicide squad which was something that was kind of just dropped when that volume of suicide squad ended and i thought that that was such a shame because him as sort of the man in the chair the sort of guy who understood the psychology of the other squad members and kind of was playing them serving as Waller's second. I thought it was a great use of that character. Yeah. It's uh, really akin to having Harvey in task force Z. Yeah. I'm just literally scanning down my 20 pages of notes to make sure, make sure there's, cause I, I we need to talk about staff. We need to talk about the very end which will tie into a little bit more of the Julia stuff. Oh, Vicky Vale. Ah, there's so much. We, we can probably circle back. Let's just say Jason Bard is playing Vicky Vale like a fiddle. Vicky, I mean, she wants a real story and I mean, she's still strong, but Jason Bard sees what she wants and is like, yeah, I'm going to feed you everything I want, which is all part of his little plot. So Stephanie Brown is a character who had been completely erased by the new 52. And we had seen that she was going to be involved in this in the preview issue for this series that had appeared in Batman, Batman 28, which fits towards the end of this series. And we'll be covering as part of this in its proper place in the timeline. But what this basically does is it puts Stephanie back to where she was when she first appeared as basically saying, screw you, dad, to her father, the clue master. And clue master here is the leader of a group of like lesser Batman villains. You see him around the table with signal man, firefly and lockup. I, I will say just as a, as a general idea, it's hard to take a guy like Clue Master seriously when his origin story is so pathetic and when everybody else treats him as just kind of a, kind of a joke. He is seen trying to kill his daughter. It's, it's a very weird disconnect. And that's not how he was before this. And it's not how he's played necessarily after this. He's only popped up again very recently, like in the past two or three months in Batgirls. He's been dead for the end of this series until a few months ago. So like seven years of real time. But he wanted respect, but he was not a particularly a homicidal maniac. And he was never a kill my own daughter kind of guy in the pre-Flashpoint universe. Stephanie in this part of the story is basically on the run because she saw whoever was giving clue master and his crew maybe marching orders maybe a silent partner she knows who it is and they need her dead so she doesn't reveal the identity of their silent partner now the fact that when he first appears and knocks her out and goes <laughs> is a hint but it's a red herring as we will eventually see but still that ties into the end of this 
part of the story, which we'll get to in a minute. But Stephanie here is, she's Chekhov's spoiler because we're waiting for her to have to costume on because she's, you know, she's hiding, she's getting shot at, she's making blog posts, trying to tell everyone that Cluemaster has this big plan for Gotham and everybody's replying in the comments like, Cluemaster? The guy in the orange and blue? That guy? Nobody expects Cluemaster to be anything. And rightly so, because Cluemaster has never been anything. He's a second-rate Riddler. That is how everybody views him. And not for lack of him trying to be more. He's just never been a winner. But that's important for what we're going to be seeing as this story continues. The fact that even the reader is in all likelihood assuming that whoever is the big bad is the mysterious figure in the shadows and that Cluemaster is just a puppet. And we do see that Steph is resourceful. She has nothing and she's staying ahead of these supervillains. But that all ties into the the last issue here where we talked about a bit of it before when Wayne Manor is invaded and Alfred gets to be badass. And then we see who was able to invade the manor. Who was the kind of strategist who would put this whole thing together? Because at the end of this issue, at the end of issue 21, enter Hush. And he is our first real, ah, so this is the guy who's behind the whole thing. Ah, it must be him. I will say, after reading issue one, I had assumed it was Deacon Blackfire. Until we got a little bit and found out, oh, he's just a ghost. And what did you think of this sort of echo of the cult? I I thought the scenes that we were basically retelling or reimagining the cult, I thought they were good. You know, it showed what Deacon Blackfire was. It showed his demise. And I dug it. My problem with it is the fact that the cult works because it's a story of Batman breaking and then Batman sort of having to come back from that. This version, he never breaks. And so it's just sort of keeping the important beats to move this story forward without actually embracing the essence of the cult. Mm. But you couldn't tell that story in five pages, <laughs> which is all they really have time for. Because in case you couldn't notice by this hour that I, this episode that I thought would be shorter, but is instead running on the long side, there's a lot going on here. Yes, there is a lot going on here. But in the end, not only do we see Hush, who shoots Alfred up with an injection of fear toxin to the brain. Can't be good. But who is still able to hold on just long enough to tell Julia, grandfather clock, 1048. Alfred holds on long enough to provide Batman the backup he needs and to prove to his daughter that he isn't just some rich man's butler. Mm. He does the two most important things. He protects 
he protects both of his children. But we then cut to Bard, who Batman had given him the evidence that Batwoman had found that would exonerate Jim. And Bard immediately rushes off to Blackgate with a writ to free a prisoner. And you see him walk to Jim Gordon's cell and walk right past. And there he springs the architect, then goes back out on his phone and calls up his mother, quote unquote, who he's been talking to this whole time, who it turns out, oh, it's Hush, as he breaks the flash drive that has the evidence because Bard is in on this whole thing. And that is what ends act one. The mob war is over, but Hush has just taken Alfred off the board and Batman's new maybe ally in the GCPD is in fact part of this conspiracy. It's a hell of a cliffhanger. That it is. Oh boy. Yeah. A lot to talk about in those 21 issues. And again, it's, it's some good comics. Yeah. I, I I think there's maybe a dearth of like singular, amazing moments, but on the whole, very good work. I agree. I understand that they wanted to sort of touch on every aspect of Batman. And Lord knows, you'd never think I'd be the one who would say this. But the Tim Drake plot and, frankly, the Arkham plot don't serve the main narrative as much. And I Mm. kind of feel like those could have been trimmed away to allow for more time with the more interesting plots of Barbara trying to clear her father. And you could have added those characters into that or the Batman plot or one of the other things with Tim and Harper and Batwing as part of those plots. I know why they were doing it. And it was partially because those are the characters the writers wanted to write and they wanted to have a supernatural story. They wanted to have a sci-fi story, but there was so much going on that I kind of wish there'd been a little more tight focus. And I think part of that is when you've got 52 issues, you think, Oh, we can squeeze in all of this stuff. It's 52 issues. I'm looking forward to us eventually covering Batman and Robin eternal, which is only 26 issues because that was a tighter plot. I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily better but it's a tighter plot because they only had 26 issues and had already gone through this once they had done the 52 weeks and so they now knew better how to handle that weekly schedule you know you mentioned how the writers you know, they wanted to do sci-fi they wanted to do horror you know what's the story that nobody wanted to touch courtroom drama yeah we, get- we see the opening arguments and then we see jury comes back with a guilty verdict nothing in between and it's a gut punch of prosecution's opening yep it's really well written and it's really like oh oh jim i can kind of see why you i mean other than you know 100 and something lives lost and you know but the way that you're being called on it ooh that hurts okay i think it's it's it might be time 
I certainly do not have anything else. So that means it's time to put the first volume of Batman Eternal on the big board. We currently have 222 stories on the big board. That's a lot of stories. And not a single Harvey in this one. Number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50, we have Batman and the Mad Monk, the Matt Wagner version of that story. And coming in at a sexy 69, it's Detective Comics Annual Number 2, Blood Secrets. Down at 100 is Fear of Faith, the second arc of No Man's Land. Down at 150 is Death Cast the Deciding Vote in the Silent Night of Batman, the book that we probably should have treated as two separate stories, but we were still learning because that was only the f- within the first few months of this show. Too late for that now. Yep. Down at 200 is Batman in Darkest Night when Batman gets a power ring. And hey, Yuck. down at 222, it's White Knight. Still a fucking turd. This is a hard thing to rank because it's only a partial story. And it's it's not even something that is like Injustice where there's sort of an intentional moment where this ends. This is an, an artificial climax. I mean, it's a good point to break it. It's a good cliffhanger. Damn, we didn't even talk about Killer Croc and Bard and Batman down in the sewers. God, there's so much that happens in this book. But... It's it's just it's hard to rank a story that is a beginning and a middle without an end. But we'll I try. think it's yeah, well, we have to try that. That's all we yes. can do. I think it's engaging. I think it's ambitious. The art is, as we've said, it's uneven, but none of it is truly as bad as we see in Injustice. Oh, no. All of these artists are capable to great. I know you're not a big Dustin the Wind person. I am. I like his stuff. I mean, you've got him. You've got Jason Fabuk. You've got early Michael Janine. I know, very early. Andy Clark is a pretty, you know, straight across the board kind of, you know, DC house style type artist. But then you have that one super weird issue by Ian Bertram, who's a weird artist. Not again, not a bad artist. And an artist whose stuff I like, but it's like, this is a weird fit for this. Uh, is that the guy with that more like storybook style? Yeah, the big faces and the giant eyes. He just won. Yeah, issue. yeah. He's. I've seen him mostly be like a horror artist, which you can see. I wish he had done some of the Professor Pig stuff. I think he would have been an artist who would have worked really well with the pig weirdness. I like top fifty for this. See, here's the weird thing: is like. How divergent are these three parts going to be? Are we really going to be just dropping them in on top of each other? And it's just, which is the better part? I don't know if that's necessarily true, because I think maybe especially as we get to the end and all the plots start kind of dovetailing together and you get an end where everything is more streamlined, it will feel less all over the place. But we're going to have to see. Let's see. Number 50 is Batman and the Mad Monk. All right, let's let's flip the script. Instead of figuring out a, a a basement, let's try to figure out a ceiling. Okay, let's start there. What is what can this not be better than? 
Uh, Nightfall at 20. Oh, yeah, definitely not. I don't think it beats 31. I don't think it beats the nobody. Because that is that is a quick, really emotionally important Batman story that really understands who Batman is and says something about who Batman is. Well, I think this whole story, in the end, says something about Batman. This first part on its own, I don't think does. As much, at least, as The Nobody. And I will say it uh, does not have the emotional resonance of Golem of Gotham at 39. Mm. Okay, so I think you're right. Okay, I think you're right on that. Let's say, let's make that its ceiling. It's going no no higher than, than 40, than a lonely place of dying. First appearance of Tim Drake. Got it. Or first, you know, real appearance of Tim Drake. But I think as much as we like it, I think it's somewhere in between 40 and 53. Because as much fun as Mystery Casebook is, this is way meatier than that. Yeah. All right, I'm going to throw a number out. Right now. Okay. Okay. I'm going to say 46. Solo number one, which is the current 46, is very slight when it comes to how much Batman is in it. It's just that opening short. I'd be willing to even go up a spot or two from there. But right above that at 45 is the man who laughs. Here's okay. Here's the thing. Man who laughs winds up there because while it's really good it's not doing anything new because it's literally retelling an existing story. This is taking the spine of a story we've seen before. Someone is trying to break Batman by coming at him from all sides, which we've seen in Batman 400, which we've seen in Nightfall. And because they have the time with 52 issues are building that out into a more sweeping story, which is very cool, but because they have all that time, it meanders in places. Mm. Man Who Laughs is a direct punch. It's, okay, this is a retelling of this story. We're expanding it because that original story was 10 pages, and now we have 60. But it remains a much more direct story while this sort of takes its time to get where it's going. And we're feeling that and we're only a little less than halfway through. And we're seeing that. I think there's no way you could read this and not see that, whether it feel painful, like we've read stories that meander. No, Jesus. We've read 12 issues that read like 20. Yes. This is 21 issues that reads like 21 issues and that are kind of in different spots, but none of them are boring. None of them are ponderous, but you don't get swept away and lose track of the fact that you're reading 21 issues of a series. I concur on all points. So Batman Eternal volume one, the new 46. There we go. So just for you out there who might be following along or whatever, this is the longest part of this. The next part is just 13 issues, issues 22 to 34. 
And then you've got the balance, the last 18 issues plus Batman volume two, number 28. So it's still a couple issues shorter than this first part. So there's still a lot to go, but this is the biggest part. And we'll see why when we cover the next two and how it breaks down. That was that was quite an episode. And as I said, next week, we're back for that coverage of those next 13 issues with part two. I'll be here. So will I. I, I actually will not leave this chair until next week. You should at least get up from the chair and stretch your legs. We don't want your muscles to atrophy, man. And you run a lot. <laughs> You'd go into some kind of system shock. Uh, no, I'm dedicated. I'm going to be here. All right. Well, you'll have a lot of time to read those next 13 issues then. But before that, we'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jin, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaugh. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl. Tony Thornley. Go Utes. Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.